I only count on myself to protect me. Even most people living in homes are not safe to be around. It's gonna be a free-for-all in a lot of places soon. Get your guns and ammo while you can. These passages are not excerpted from the more paranoid right-wing corners of the web, unless you think nextdoor.com fits that description. This neighborhood networking site, specifically the Colonial Town North forums, are the source of inspiration for old friend of the club and Borough Press publisher Ryan Rivas in his new book from Autofocus Press, Next Door in Colonial Town. It's a really engaging collage of photos of the neighborhood and nextdoor.com posts remixed, reimagined, and reassembled into titled entries that resemble poems. Ryan joins us today to discuss his photography, his inspiration, whether the posts on Nextdoor actually represent his own lived experience of residing in this Orlando neighborhood, and the cultural and vaguely imperialistic impulses behind the creation of American suburbs in general. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. Join me in welcoming back Ryan Rivas to the Florida Book Club, uh, founder of Borough Press and author of Next Door in Colonial Town. Uh, as we'll get to in this interview, we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with some terms to describe it, a collage, an assemblage, uh, a very unique book, I would say. And he'll tell us a little bit about the neighborhood that it's based around and about the book itself. So uh, welcome back to the clubhouse, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Chris. Okay, so a couple, a little two-part question here just to lead us off. What is Colonial Town geographically and from your perspective uh, as a resident? And just how did this project all come together from inspiration to publication? Yeah, so um, Colonial Town North specifically is the name of the neighborhood that I live in, in Orlando, Florida. Um, About a mile outside of downtown, one of many what they call bungalow neighborhoods, you know, surrounding the city center. Um, On the other side of Colonial Drive, which is the barrier of Colonial, one of the boundaries of Colonial Town North is Colonial Town South. Um, And so these are just um, really evocative, um, interesting names that kind of help spark the project in a way. Um, You know, I, I wondered like how, how we got them. Um, and so I explore that a little bit in a historical note at the end of the book, but uh, which we could talk about later. But um, to me, it's a place I've lived for, I guess, over 10 years now and um, really just began to examine um, critically um, as a as a resident. I mean, you know, I've always been... At, critical or paying attention to like politics and things that happen in Orlando as a whole and central Florida and in Florida, but um, never really scrutinized my actual sort of neighborhood. Right. Um, And and in this sense, um, what I've come up with here and what I presented is kind of an, it's colonial town. It's both colonial town, Orlando and kind of colonial town, USA. Um, It's a limited, it's a limited perspective of the neighborhood um, that kind of developed as I was taking these photos. Um, so during the pandemic, um, and a little bit before I was going on runs and jogs and sometimes just walks, um, for exercise around my neighborhood. And I had come across a, um, in the evening, like I had come across this house that reminded me of the way it was lit, the shadows, the lighting reminded me of a painting by this um, Central Florida painter, Erica Sobrak. 
And um, I consider her work kind of like suburban Gothic, right? There's this play of light and shadow, the subjects, there's no people. Um, the subjects are, are houses, houses that look very, in many of her paintings, central Floridian or Floridian kind of bungalows, cinder block or, or ranchers or, um, or what do they call those? Uh, Craftsman homes. Yeah, thank you. I was like, I always forget. <laughs> that was a total random shot in the dark. I, I was like, I've heard that phrase home. before. <laughs> yeah. This is my brain works in such a way where I'm picturing the color pattern of the craftsman before I can actually <laughs> evoke the word. Um, so anyway, um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I took a picture and I was like, homage um, to Erica Sabrak. And then I kind of like couldn't unsee um, through that lens for a while. So I started just taking more pictures of houses in the neighborhood. And um, I would, I labeled them sort of suburban Gothic, number one, suburban Gothic, number two, whatever. Um, and um, I don't know, I probably did like 60 of them. Um, and somewhere around like maybe number 40, I had a conversation with, so this for me was just, it began as a, um, a sort of creative outlet between writing projects or during revision process, which I was doing on a, on a novel. And, um, and I didn't think of it as a, as a project that would be published. However, um, I had coffee with a publisher friend of mine, Mike Wheaton, who also lives in Orlando. His press is called autofocus. Um, they're based in Orlando and, um, they focus on artful autobiographical writing. So they really run the gamut of, nonfiction, creative nonfiction, essay, memoir, hybrid. And he asked me uh, at the time, um, before he started publishing books, he asked me if I just had anything to send to the online journal for autofocus. And I said, eh, I don't really do nonfiction. And um, he's like, what about those photos you've been taking? And I was like, oh, um, well, yeah, those are certainly like kind of documentary um, in a sense. And um and I was like, you just want the photos? He's like, well, no, what if you what if you wrote an essay or or put some kind of text with them? Um, and obviously the constraint being it would have to be in a kind of nonfiction or autobiographical mode. And I still don't feel like I'm a, a big autobiographical or or no, sir, that's the wrong word, actually. I'm really not a nonfiction writer um, or an essayist. Um but I was intrigued. And in my thinking, I eventually landed on this kind of non-fictional solution, um, which I can't really describe the thought process of how it happened. <laughs> Only that I went back and I started looking at the photos and I was thinking about like, you know, I guess I was trying to think about narrative um, and like, who are the characters in these photos? Um, you know, who's inside the houses? Um, if there are people, you know, um, and who's gazing back, you know, um, and it led me to, um, through a kind of free associative process, um, to nextdoor.com. And, um, I did not have an account. I used my wife's account. Um, I didn't mess with it before and I haven't messed with it since I don't quite recommend it. Um, for those who don't know what Nextdoor is, I know there's a certain younger generation, um, that, um, you know, luckily doesn't know what it is. <laughs> Basically, it's like a Facebook for your neighborhood. Everybody on there is a verified neighbor and you can search, you know, posts within your own neighborhood. And it's a place where people can post helpful things like I'm missing my cat. Please help me find it. Or, you know, I'm looking for a lawn person or I'm looking for a handyman or whatever. Um, but it's also a place where, um, you know, 
people police their fellow neighbors, um, you know, often, you know, with extreme prejudice, you know, um, yeah. it, it's like, like much of the internet, a portion of it is a cesspool of racism and paranoia. Um, and so there's that aspect. And so I kind of looked through the posts and what people were writing about and posting about in colonial town North specifically, and then also colonial town South, and then kind of the greater downtown area. So I kind of looked at the posts of my, my close neighbors and then my more distant neighbors. And, you know, I mean, I found, you know, what you normally find on the internet, which is like a mix of um, amazement and disgust. Uh, and so um, I, but what I did realize in looking at these posts was that like people write the weirdest things. Like obviously people share things that I wouldn't normally share um, or just kind of like, share like wh whether it's like a personal thing or just like a thought you know like um i heard two gunshots today or what i thought were gunshots and it's just like okay and what do we do with this information? <laughs> um, and so um the the sort of individual comments sometimes in context and sometimes removed from context um and sometimes within a conversation the individual comments would decontextualize themselves because people on the internet tend to like talk past each other, um, not listen, you know, just read, just kind of like put what they want to say without even really reading the other comments. So there's this like, poetic chaos to it that I thought I might um, mine essentially. So long story short, I started a, long, a, a huge document of comments that I just kind of isolated um, and as being either particularly weird or kind of strangely phrased um, almost like dialogue from a, you know, from a novel, sometimes maybe like a, I like to think of some of them as like being ripped from like a Joy Williams novel or a Percival Everett novel or something just like mundane and strange um, in, in the syntax. And um, so I just created this huge document and then I just started repurposing the text and creating new conversations out of existing comments. So I, um, each individual comment is as it appeared online. Um, as they appear in the book, they're rearranged so that the comments are word for word, but the conversation that happens, um, the dialogue or trialogue or whatever <laughs> that gets paired with the photograph is taken from multiple, multiple threads. Um, and so I consider it uh, kind of like an image text and you know, the images I took and the text I consider kind of found text and whether we want to call that, you know, poetry or documentary poetry, or I don't, for, for me, I don't really care as much, or I'm not as concerned with, with the genre label as much, but yeah. No, no, I got you. I, you know, next door, I've always thought of as like a place where the older adults who complain about kids on TikTok and Instagram go to act out their own, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, similar uh, themed uh, <laughs> posts unselfconsciously. So uh, mm -hmm. that's sort of been my, my take on it. Yeah. So you kind of preempted one of my questions. It's like, you know, as I was reading them, I'm like, so would, would I call these poems? Would I call them like Microsoft? It's it's like strange. Like, I'm not even sure what sort of genre to to place them in. And you know, and, and I did wonder whether they were all taken from from similar or from the same threads, you know, mm -hmm. on there or if they were like, you know, carefully sort of curated uh, to be like taken from from different discussion threads. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I don't know, was it, what was the process of pairing like the text with with the photos too? like, did you I mean, I imagine there had to be, you know, a lot of creativity there to to say like, OK, I'm going to put this group of of lines or this this group of text with this photo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a sort of kind of mix and match process, um, which was actually kind of fun. Um, the project was low stakes from the beginning because I didn't anticipate it being published or I didn't even anticipate it in its current form, whether that was um, online or in print. And so um, I kind of had fun with it. I just, once I, once I decided to sort of remix next door threads or conversations, I started to do that on, um, on their own. Right. So I would like, I would just create a conversation. I would start to group them. I'd have a separate file where I would pull out the individual lines. And so I know that I, I have used them um, and have a sort of just rough draft of, of various conversations that um, for simplicity's sake, I would just title one of the sort of words from, um, from the conversation itself. And um, some of those titles stuck. And um, I would then kind of see what I had and go back to the photographs. At the time, I was only going to do, you know, a handful for for the online journal. And so when I had about seven or eight, I, I had, you know, maybe 40 photos to choose from. So I, I also used a kind of free associative method, I guess, um, to think about either a mood that gets evoked or a word. So like if there's a word in one of the text pieces that evokes a mood that is not necessarily explicit in the photo, but is kind of there in a photo, I would kind of pair them. Um, there are some, you know, there are some where somebody knocks at a door. And so it makes more sense to show a facade of a house than it does to show something sitting on the curb. Right. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's like a spatial consideration or a very loose narrative consideration. Um, and then once I had those in place, uh, for, for eight of them, it was, it was really easy. And then when I, but I also like had more, <laughs> I, I had done eight and I had sent eight, but I probably had done about 15 total and, and pared it down to eight to send for the online journal. Um, and so, um, later when, when it became a book, my process, was a little bit different in that I wanted to think about um, how one, how many I should do um, total, and then how I could arrange them to create a kind of um, loose narrative um, with some recurring themes, and then maybe some, um, you know, considering both how to balance the 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 text, some of which was absurd, some of which was a little bit more serious, some of which was just flat out weird with the images too, which um, the majority of them I tried in this book to keep them in the daylight, um, which I think of as a little bit more of a Lynchian Gothic, you know, mm -hmm. um, dissociating the Gothic from the darkness, which has its, you know, problematic racist origins. Um, there are night shots in there, of course, um, but I wanted to kind of trouble that a little bit. And so um, I was thinking about those kinds of tropes as well when arranging the larger book. So um, 
I don't know if that answers your question or if I've wandered a little bit too far into the woods here. So no, wandering is encouraged <laughs> completely. Um, no, I, the photos themselves are pretty amazing. I couldn't believe you took those on your phone. Honestly, they look really professional. They have a gloss that uh, looks like that. And 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 as you said, I, I just was fascinated by them as images. There's all these weird objects. There's these creepy encroaching shadows of trees on the streets. There's like plants taking over houses and sidewalks, which is my kind of stuff. I like that. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I just I, so so for people listening, I mean, the photography itself is worth the price of admission with this book. Um, I uh, and and. It's strange. I, there's a, there's a line that struck me from uh, the poem. I'm going to call them poems, just you know, in yeah. absence of a word or entry or entries uh, from victim. We uh, said a little bit. Uh, you, I'm going to just credit you. This is this is again all these problems of attribution and genre. Um, a little prudent paranoia is better than being the next victim. I also saw in home. Even most people living in homes are not safe to be around. And then in uh, the entry plant. The world's most evil person stole our plant. That's what someone said. And, you know, just the these tendencies toward rhetorical extremism, you know, that you see here, you kind of touched on this a little bit, and it, it roughly parallels my own experiences on uh on Nextdoor. But this sort of mentality, this this um this idea of of like this sort of escalating rhetoric where things can uh, go from like innocuous to to just sort of this really overblown kind of paranoid rhetoric i mean as i said that's that's the sort of thing you find on a lot of social media but does it represent your lived experience of colonial town as as you sort of experience it as a as a resident in real life yeah um that's a great question so it actually doesn't at all um i think there's a more pernicious kind of um white supremacy that exists at the heart of colonial town as it does at the heart of other neighborhoods like mm -hmm. mine that bills itself as a, you know, liberal progressive place, you know, like um, during the June uprisings, the Black Lives Matter signs come out, you know, we have the first openly gay city commissioner. Um, so there's, you know, um, in the 90s, this neighborhood was was sort of re um, furbished, if you will, I don't know. Um, by by a gay couple who like then kind of made it a sort of gay hub or a gayberhood, if you will. And some of that is uh has lasted in the spirit of the neighborhood. Um it's interesting in the sense that I don't think the neighborhood was ever properly gentrified because it was like in when it was created, um, segregation had already been, whether it was de facto or de jure, had sort of already been in place in Orlando. Um, so once people started to live here, it was white people, right? Um, and so if anything, it was undergone, it's it's the changes it's undergone haven't been necessarily one of displacement that happened elsewhere further south of here. Um, but but in terms of how I experienced the neighborhood itself, there's lots to love about it. Um it's uh it's not like all run down, weird, creepy houses. And in fact, the sort of commercial district that um that borders it um was i don't know if people still call it little saigon or not but um it's it's lined with a lot of asian american businesses um after the migration post vietnam war um in which a lot of um, vietnamese folks came to orlando um another form of sort of displaced by colonialism you know if you will um and so there's other interesting echoes that don't quite exist in the book 
um, what I wanted to do was kind of peel um, the subtle, you know, um, you said people post kind of um, unselfconsciously. And I think that's a really key word there. Like, I think I was trying to pull out this kind of collective white unconscious from these comments, right? Because sometimes you don't know who's actually posting them. Um, if, if that person considers themselves, you know, to be an upstanding liberal and you know, or liberal in good standing or something. Right. Um, and so um, I think that though this neighborhood is like, I, I wouldn't say it would be a dangerous one for a person of color to, you know, walk through um, per se all the time, you know, you never know. Um, it's an ostensibly welcoming neighborhood. There's always that sort of underbelly um, and that, that layer of, of paranoia and fear that people kind of experience privately. And I feel like express white people, I should say experience privately. And I feel like gets expressed in like posts, like next door posts and things like that. Um, or, you know, in conversations among other white people, et cetera. So, um, so while I think on the surface, it's, it's a fine place to live like a lot of places. It's also a place like a lot of places that has a history of, you know, being founded on settler colonialism, um, and being, you know, 90% white and the, and, and that's not always something that is like, you know, immediate or on the surface. Um, and so kind of like, my goal, I guess, was to kind of extract that and to highlight that um, about the neighborhood, even though that's not necessarily my day-to-day -day experience of it. Um, it's in a way, it's almost a kind of like a haunting underneath, um, a haunting of the past. And so, hence this sort of gothic mode, right? Um, and so, I think I'm wandering into the woods again here, but... Um, no problem. No problem. There. That, was the, that was kind of the intention. Um, there is... I would say that the colonial town that is presented as Orlando that appears in the book is a version of colonial town Orlando that is also a version of every other, um, you know, majority white suburb that was built in the wake of, you know, the, the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, in that light, that that quote from victim sound, you know, the, about a pr little prudent paranoia is better than being the next victim. That seems to encapsulate a lot of what you said about that sort of mm -hmm. potentially underground or beneath the surface mentality that might pervade, uh, yeah, some people's attitudes, you know, in, in mm -hmm. private. I, I, I kind of like that was a great explanation. Thank you. Um, you know, and 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 it's strange, sort of as as sort of a framing device. You mentioned the afterward uh, earlier, like sort of the concluding. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, concerned when I when I read books with epigrams and afterwards and intros. I don't know. I view those as sort of frames for for the book. So I I did wonder when I was reading this. I was like, wow, this is it's really interesting that the afterward is is at the end. And I I wondered why you you know what was your your thought process in putting it there as opposed to as an intro. I mean, I wondered if it was like you didn't. You know, you didn't want to like frame the book a certain way or or bias people or give them, you know, expectations or or impressions going in and just let them sort of absorb the the content and then maybe reflect on it afterward. Uh no pun intended, <laughs> by reading the the outro, I guess we'll say. So yeah. I, I don't know. Is that you know, I found it really curious that it was at the end as opposed to the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it, actually. Um it is a it is a work 
of art, right? In that sense. And so the, I think I call it a note, which is just like, you know, modest mm-hmm. of me. So it just like, it's a mostly, four page note. Yeah. It's mostly history. Um, I wanted it to be longer and conceptual. And then it turns out that that's probably, it's probably for the best that it wasn't. Um, you know, the point of the note is to just draw a, an explicit connection between, you know, the the infrastructure of white supremacist settler colonialism and suburbanization, right? Like there's a direct link. The patterns are the same. Um, historically in Orlando and in Florida, as well as in most of the United States. So like, I wanted that there um, because colonial town was the sort of like concept handed to me, right? Like there's just, it's such, like I said, an evocative name that um, the idea of colonialism was kind of always at back of mind, you know? Um, And, and so, um, but I didn't want to, you know, I think it is an image textbook first. So I didn't want to like, yeah, like bias the reader, if you will. Um, I also thought too, that there's a way in which the, um, we kind of myself included consume like racist narratives. Um, even if it's a commentary on racism in a way that's not necessarily productive, um, you know, I think I think particularly for for certain like white readers um, to laugh at the obviously absurdly paranoid people is to also um, is to dismiss it and to to sort of dismiss a sense of complicity. And so, what I wanted to do with the afterward or the note at the end was to say like look, we're actually all complicit on this land, you know, when you live in a suburb that is um, 90% white, you know, there is a certain level of historical um, complicity and that history isn't all that distant. Um, And so, you know, what does that actually mean? So I kind of wanted to temper the entertainment factor that could be taken, I think, from a really like what I think of as kind of an e- potentially easy read, right? Like mm-hmm. copy people book, like pretty pictures and weird, weird, funny, strange text. Um, and I wanted to kind of put that there just as in the same way, I wanted to kind of temper it with the, um, the two resources that I put at the end, which is in the, throughout the book, there's a lot of, um, I feel like for the most part, minus a few slippages, the book really, um, embodies the the or in minds if you want to say um embraces the sort of like uh, the sort of like malevolent white consciousness right that is looking out of windows and surveilling and there's you know there's references to you know over policing did you call the police did you get a gun there's you know um and so um and these sort of like frontier forms of justice if you will um so i wanted to include a couple of alternative resources to kind of temper that as well to say like hey even though we are observing these comments that people have made that are really um counterproductive to like a healthy society and democracy let's also consider like that in reality now that we've left the image text portion of the book we can learn more about um, alternative forms of justice, right? So transformharm.com takes you to all kinds of resources about um, prison and police abolition, transformative justice, you know, alternatives to the current like criminal punishment system. And then a more simple um, 
sort of resource was to just don't call the police.com, which is something that takes you to alternatives to policing um, in your city. And so Orlando, I don't think is necessarily has a, a robust <laughs> um, alternative infrastructure. Um, we might not have any, in fact, but, um, but I thought, you know, this isn't just an Orlando book, so that would be a good resource nationwide. Um, and even in its, even in its URL, it's just kind of evocative enough to say, okay, like this book is, this is the stance of this book at least, um, or at least of the author after having read all this stuff, um, that is just very toxic and nasty. So I wanted to kind of make that clear by putting those two links at the end of the book as well. Uh, as well as the historical note. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you you you, you mentioned and described those links at, at further length because uh, I, I completely <laughs> agree with that. I had Tampa is the same way. I, I think that's calling the police is sort of like the knee jerk, you know, de rigueur reaction to just about any sort of uh, I, I'm not even uh, like public uh, disruption, but but any sort of like perceived fearful, strange event or person. And it's funny you mention about, uh, you know, surveilling and like, I'm scared of other white people, <laughs> you know, the, the mentality <laughs> that you mentioned as a white person, you know, this idea, oh, you should get a gun. Let's go. Like, I'm more scared of those people than I am of whoever they are suspicious of, if you know what I mean. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm worried that my daughter is going to be shot by some quote unquote law abiding citizen who's like, you know, thinking they're acting in the public interest. That's what worries me and keeps me up at night. So I completely get that. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank, thank you for explaining that, too. And I'll include uh, but for our listeners, there will be links to those uh, to those sites in, in uh, with this episode. So anyway, uh, the last thing I want to ask you, I, I uh, have someone who was on uh, uh, Seminole Heights next door uh, for a while, which Seminole Heights is sounds very, very similar to um, Colonial Town, even down to the bungalows and craftsman homes. And it's. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I loved living there. It was just a like about eerily about a mile outside of Tampa's downtown. But uh, it's, yeah, I'm familiar actually with the with the neighborhood. Yeah, so uh, it, where I live now is a lot quieter. I was initially very bored at first living here, but uh, <laughs> but the thing is, so what I see also is posts about coyotes on some of the lights next door, and I just I keep wondering. I've never seen a coyote in Tampa, even though my backyard is the woods, basically where mm -hmm. I am now, and. Just in your lived experience, not not maybe on next door, but are coyotes really that much of an issue? Do they really occupy that much headspace of the people in Colonial Town? Well, they really do occupy that much headspace. However, they're not that much of an issue. I've never seen one um, in, you know, 12 years. And most people actually don't um, see them unless they're out very, very early in the morning. Um, and so... Um, that kind of says it all um, about it. It's this overblown um, thing, right? It's this representation of uh, fear, of suburban fear embodied in this coyote, um, which just so happens to also have a tradition of being this kind of trickster figure, right? In Native American mm -hmm. storytelling um, in, some, in some tellings. And so, um, so I, yeah. Um, you didn't phrase this as a question, but that's why it, that's why the coyote recurs in the book. It's the only obviously recurring thing, um, topic, if you will, um, of interest, you know? So, but yeah, I don't, I, I could talk more about it, but 
<laughs> um, but yeah, they're not in reality, they're not a problem. Um, really for anyone, as long as you, you know, really just like keep, keep your small pets indoors, like you'll be fine. Um, and, uh, I think that it, there's an interesting relationship to, um, this specific kind of paranoia and white supremacy. Um, like the, the philosopher George Yancey um, is kind of, kind of paraphrasing another philosopher, um, Charles Mills, when he says that like white supremacy is an inverted epistemology that results in massive forms of hallucination. And um, that certainly captures a lot of the uh, ethos of the book, but is really, really, really embodied in, in the recurring coyote scenes. Like you can't just see, like there's this tiny um, animal that exists in kind of solitude and and is sort of hidden in the underbelly of these you know urban suburban neighborhoods um that get blown up into these massive villains right and um and monsters really and so the process of like monstrification if you will i don't know if that's a word oh um, it is it is a word i use it a lot (laughs) excellent um so this process of monstrification trademark um the uh that that gets kind of put on the coyote is is really just a one for one um substitution of, of the way in which um you know white people put that on non-white people and so in addition to it taking up a lot of headspace and text space on in the book and on actual and in the neighborhood um it also kind of um was a perfect just analogy to include um, it was just low hanging fruit in a way, <laughs> um, the way people were talking about these coyotes was just like the metaphor was just right there for the taking. So that's another reason why, um, I almost couldn't resist. And then, um, the fact that it appears at the end of each section, a new coyote kind of section appears also really helped create a structural anchor. So it's also practical, like and useful, um, and representative of the kind of uh, amount of yeah, amount of space um, in the in the white imaginary that the coyote takes up. Um, so no, I, it, look, I've, I've I completely get the parallel that you're making there. Um, my experiences, in addition to in, introducing a kind of eco critical theme uh, in there, but I find <laughs> that. Uh, People who are scared of other groups of people tend to be just generally afraid of almost anything that's different or invasive or they perceive as being invasive. So I, I, I completely get what you're saying. It's it's not surprising that that bleeds over into their views of the environment and the habitat and everything. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because the um, like the, the ecological angle of it is something that that is certainly there, but wasn't at the forefront and in. um kind of having read a lot of suburban Gothic works from like the forties, fifties, sixties or whatever. Um, that's in one of the interesting touchstones of like the fear and anxiety around suburbanization is the devastation of natural environments. However, like the link between that and white supremacy, um, is never made, um, and whiteness as a sort of factor of suburbanization wrapped up with the, you know, ecological devastation is never turned up as a sort of, um, or not, not commonly turned up in, in certain suburban Gothic, um, books. It's more taken for granted than, than the other aspects of 
that sort of paradigm shift from, you know, rural to suburbanization that happened at the turn of the century. Um, so I thought that was important too, to highlight whiteness and make whiteness visible and, um, you know, over the kind of ecological critique, critique, but like, obviously it's there always and implicit. All right. Well, thanks a lot. So I'll just, I will, I, again, people need to read this book too. So, you know, I, I feel like we barely scraped the surface of its implications, <laughs> but, uh, but I'll just, I'll finish by asking you. So uh, what else do you have going on now? I mean, with Borough Press, with your own work, what's coming down the road for you? Yeah. So um, with my own work, I have a, uh, like a novella coming out in the fall, I think Ooh. September. Uh, it's called Lizard People <laughs> with um, 30 West Press, 30, 30 West Publications. Um, they're, uh, they're amazing. And I should have a proof of that to send out to reviewers and stuff pretty soon and probably do some readings around that. Um, and then um, in addition to kind of working on finishing some projects that are Far from done. I'm shopping around another uh, a novel, um, a suburban gothic novel, if you will. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of what I have going on. And then, um, in terms of Borough, we got a very exciting year ahead of us. Uh, we had a book that kind of got delayed from last year that's coming out very soon um, called Rolling: A Lady's Guide to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is sort of essay. Um, disguised as a how-to guide um, by Melanie Farmer. So that's coming out soon. That was supposed to come out last year, uh, but I'm very excited for that. And then um, up next, we'll have like a an anthology called What's Mine of Wilderness, which includes, um, we, we ran the text online, um, but it includes new visual art by six different artists um, paired with poems and essays and, and prose um, about, you know, the, how we, as people engage with the environment and particularly, you know, underrepresented marginalized groups um, kind of like exist in nature. Um, and that's put together by um, Chad Anderson, who's a friend of mine um, that I met through the Kerouac house in Orlando and he lives elsewhere now, but um, he put that together and picked an amazing group of, of an amazing body of work, amazing group of writers. And so that'll be coming out soon. We also have a, um, there's only two more, don't worry, the list can go on, but um <laughs> We have an anthology of writing um, by incarcerated writers coming out. Um, we're doing this in partnership with the Community Education Project, which is based out of Stetson, um, where, where Burrow is at now. Um, they have a sort of four credit classes that they do um, there for incarcerated students. And that includes writing classes. And um, this, I believe this would be the second anthology they've put out. And we've partnered with them this year to help put it together and do the design and stuff like that. Um, and the layout. So that'll be coming out soon. And then in the fall, uh, we're publishing a book of poems, like a full length poetry book uh, called Cells by Luciana Shichero Ramos. And um, it's kind of, there's a little bit of visual poetry in it. Um, it's about bees. <laughs> and um, it's mostly about bees. And then also about what language does to try to contain uh things be they bees or countries or and sort of maybe like the futility or or not or usefulness of language to describe things so it's got that kind of layer to it as well um and yeah i'm really excited about it so um that's what we've got going on this year plus whatever events we decide to do um oh and and for anyone listening actually i don't know when this is going to air but 
Um, we also, on April 10th, um, Borough Press Review, our online journal, it's going to be back in action. We'll have an open call for submissions on the theme of embodiment and belonging, edited by Brianna Bivens. So uh, that's open for submissions as of April 10th to anyone who wants to submit in um, any genre. So, um, yeah, keeping busy as usual. Awesome. Thank you very much, Ryan. And uh, hey, thanks for visiting the clubhouse once again. It's always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club, and thanks to Ryan for closing out Season 7 with us. There is a link to purchase Next Door in Colonial Town from Autofocus Press on our website, and a link to Borough Press so you can see what's going on there. To my brother John, the producer of this podcast, thanks again for all your work, and seriously, you need to reap more of the benefits and accolades such as they are for said work. Join us in a few months for Season 8. There may even be some blog posts between now and then. You never know. There's lots of Florida stories out there to be told, and a lot of them have nothing to do with the toxic ideologies the so-called leaders of this state are continually trying to foist on us. So let's keep fighting the good fight and supporting our local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you further down the beach.